In today's podcast, we start a series on purpose. So I'm going to be having three interviews in the next month on purpose. And it's just amazing to me how important purpose is for companies and individuals. So this is the first one with Renz Devader as we talk about his company, Purpose Plus. Welcome to the Exponential Organization Podcast. I'm your host, Lance Pepler. The world is changing at an exceptional rate. Companies need to not only continue to innovate, but also grow exponentially to keep up. This podcast will introduce you to the principles of exponential growth and how you can adopt them into your business. This show is sponsored by my company, IdeaStorm, a leading exponential growth consultancy. We can provide services ranging from an hour advisory call with a network of over 3,000 consultants worldwide through to the 10-week EXO Sprint. Visit www.ideastorm.ca.za to find out more. So today our guest is Renz Tevede. Um, Renz is a former strategy consultant who decided to build his own business seven years ago, Purpose Plus. And Purpose Plus is a consulting firm focused on purpose-driven strategy and has also published two books on the matter in recent years. Um, and I read one, it's a really cool book. In 2018, he also founded Chemo AI, a friendly AI coach that predicts the ideal learning path for an individual. On a more personal note, he has climbed three of the world's tallest mountains, and I'll ask him about that now, but intends to do all seven, actually, maybe not. Uh, loves wave surfing and kite surfing, is also thoroughly loves hanging out with close friends, as well as reading a lot in order to understand more about life itself. So, Rand, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lance. Uh, pleasure to be here. Cool. And so, where, where, where am I speaking to you from now in, in Holland? Yes, currently I'm, I'm based in Amsterdam, actually in my home, uh, in, in a new neighborhood. It's called the Houthavens in, uh, in Amsterdam. Okay, super. And which mountains, I've never actually spoken to people, someone who's climbed mountains. Which mountains have you climbed? Uh, I've climbed a couple so far, uh, not Everest yet, but um, I've climbed the Aconcagua, uh, which is North America, it's, it's between uh, Chile and Argentina, uh, Elbrus, uh, which is in Russia, uh, Kilimanjaro, which is in Kenya, and a couple of other peaks in Nepal, which are not, uh, not well known, but, but still very beautiful to climb. So is that what you do quite regularly? Do you do it a few times a year, go and climb mountains? Uh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, it's a bit too, um, too expensive uh, on one hand and too time-consuming ah. on the other. Uh, so we, we try to do one uh, every year. Uh, so, Renz, you're a fascinating man. And I didn't even cover in your intro that you've written an excellent book called Purpose Plus Profit. And there's a lot mm -hmm. we can discuss, but I'd love to focus on purpose in this interview. So tell me about purpose and why is purpose so important? Yeah, let, let me start with uh, an introduction of how I got Perfect. to this team in the first place. Because, because I think nowadays it's quite popular and, and there's a lot of uh, purpose-driven transformations happening in organizations. There's a lot of purpose branding happening. There's a lot of annual reports that look quite different today than in the past, right? Like a lot of them uh, mention uh, the UN SDGs and impact targets and all those things. But seven years ago, we, we were in a very different stage. Um, at the time, it was quite normal for management to be educated in the sort of classic way of, of doing business and in way that I mean the Milton Friedman model of, of, of shareholder value which technically uh, said that if you are the leader of a firm uh, first and foremost your responsibilities lie with shareholders and and doing good as a firm 
um, is not within your responsibilities because if you would transfer money that your shareholders give you uh, towards a good cause, then you're technically stealing their money to do something that is of your preference. Um, that was the traditional view, and, and any different view at the time was sort of seen as a political uh, stance, right? There may be a leftist political stance that should not be part of any business discussion. Um, and in my view, that was always a little bit of a difficult way of seeing things. And um, at the time, I remember being in McKinsey, and, and I made a proposal actually still being inside as a consultant, saying, hey, I think in the coming years, uh, companies will not stay out of this debate. Um, I'm not saying they should move left or right or have this or, or this political stance, but I think for a lot of the trends that we're seeing, uh, the inequality, the, the political trends we were seeing, the, the climate change, and quite some others, um, it would be almost impossible to not have this debate if you're a leader of a company. Yeah. So, so that sort of brought me to the place where I thought, well, regardless of the position you want to take, uh, you will have to debate this and decide what your view will be as a company, um, both from a regulation point of view that governments will demand you to, but as well as from the sort of the um, the people point of view, where the young generation will probably ask you to do that. So that's that's what brought me to Purpose Plus and to the purpose driven transformation uh, mm. agenda. On page 133 of your excellent book, it says that you know, 18,000 people below 30 were asked if in the future the most successful brands will be those that make the most positive contribution beyond just providing good services and products. And you'd say that, they, that a broad majority agreed in all 23 countries surveyed. So why are young people so interested in purpose? Um, uh, you know, Aren't they just interested in playing computer games? Is <laughs> that an yeah, 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 thing yeah, to say? Why, why are they interested in purpose? Yeah, it, 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 it's a fun question, right? And, and I think <laughs> there, 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 are more than, there are more reasons for, for a company board to consider this whole trend than, than just this particular factor, right? Obviously, the young people and, and their needs is a big one. Uh, another big one is that there's a lot of research saying that, that having a purpose-driven a firm can actually make you more money in a lot of different ways. So, so there, there's also economic reasons for, for considering it. But I think for the, the young generation, like I'm 35, so I'm sort of on the, on the border of, of, of the, the old and the new generation, I think, and maybe a bit more skewed towards the, the younger generation. Yeah. Uh, but the way I always explain it, if, if the best way to explain it is just talking from my perspective. And what I generally say is that, you know, I grew up in the, in the middle income family in, in Haarlem, which is close to Amsterdam. And in my house, we, all, we always had a car. We always had uh, peanut butter, which is what Dutch people put on, on bread in the morning. Mm. Um, we, we technically had everything, even though it was sort of it's middle income, but everything was already available. And that means that if I work really hard now, just for the sake of money, what that will give me is a better car and, and maybe more expensive organic peanut butter and some other things which are more luxurious, but, but it's very marginal in terms of returns, right? So, so I'm, that's not for me a good business case um, as a person. So I, yeah, so coming from my perspective, people want more, they want to, they watch the news, they have 24 access information to, um, to global trends. Uh, they have Google Earth, they can see how land is degrading and how climate change is impacting things. So I think for a lot of people it becomes quite, easy to understand where you could actually add value. And, it, and their own little world of 
let me change my own home and, and buy better goods. Uh, that seems to be quite a small goal at this stage. No, absolutely. So you say people will get attracted to companies that are doing good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Carry on. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so, so there's a couple of examples there, right? Where, where companies have built really great brands, and and that technically leads them to um, having an easy time hiring good people. And so, for example, one of the companies I really like, and especially when it comes to branding is Patagonia and uh, Patagonia is, a, is an outdoor brand so technically you buy your outdoor gear for skiing or for surfing with them um, but we had an offsite some time ago and a global HR director came over and his first speech was uh, to all the newcomers so uh, you should be very glad you made it because coming to Patagonia is harder than entering into Harvard right there we have so many people that try to come in that if you're one of the lucky few um, yeah you should consider yourself lucky because it's a super hard thing to come in. There's so many people applying and it's mostly for the impact reasons of the company. It's not for the specific outdoor industry. Uh, it's not because they pay the most salary. It's because it's the place to be if you want to have an impact in these days. Uh, what impact are they having? Yeah, actually a lot of things and, and they can explain it way better than I do, but from a lot of grassroots uh, initiatives. So they, they, they actually fund a lot of green initiatives. Um, uh, they they also make their whole supply chain as transparent as possible. So they try to sort of role model how you can build a sustainable firm where you use carbon emissions, etc., and, and the use of your materials and the reuse of your. Uh, but on the other side, they're also suing uh, Donald Trump in the U.S. for uh, <laughs> yeah. So they're they're doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. So it's okay. uh, it's not one. Yeah, in South Africa, here yeah, we've got a company that has um, people that go and manage robots and, and traffic lights when they're out. So they send people on motorbikes to be pointsmen um, to direct traffic because we have a, a lot of problems with our traffic. And even that little bit of, you know, a public service that they do, and it's not like saving the world or anything, but I think better of that company because they are providing that service to us uh, and they're going, you know, beyond their, their normal day-to-day -day jobs. And, and service to provide yeah. that to our community. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually that, that part, right, where, where as a company, if, if on board level you're discussing, so how, how can you really um, create an experience for employees where they feel they're, they're really valuable? Um, that's not an easy part. For a lot of companies, sort of the core business um, does not always translate to, in, to a feeling of value for every employee involved. So, so finding that sort of sweet spot where you can have activities where people actually feel that they're, they're useful and they matter in the system, it, is quite a, um, it can be quite a difficult journey. Uh, so let's talk about the inspired employees. So in your book, you show research from Bain & Company that inspired employees produce the most output. So it looks like employees that work for companies that have good purposes and, and good motive and, and do, let's say, have a good purpose, have more inspired employees. Why, why is that? Why do people work harder for companies like that? Yeah, so, so this research is always, you know, I'm a psychologist by, by training and, and this research is always interesting because the, the words change every few years. Um, so like maybe 10 years ago, we had a word which was called engagement, right? So at the time, everybody believed that you wanted to track engagement and if your people were engaged, then they did a good job in the company that sort of shifted a bit to well-being and happiness uh, sometime later. And then the belief was, well, actually it's more important that people are, are very happy and then they perform better in your company. 
Um, and the latest thing that came out is sort of, it's almost like Maslow's pyramid, right? All over again, is, is that whole notion of inspiration, which links very closely to purpose, right? So it's technically saying that if people feel they're part of a larger mission and, and they feel that they can contribute, so their own contribution has to be clear to them and they should feel their own it, um, that is really something valuable and then people are willing to go the extra mile. Uh, and, and there's a couple of sides to this, of course, like, like it links to motivation, um, but it also links, for example, to, to being perceived as a good leader. So leaders that have this feeling are perceived more positively than leaders that do not have this feeling. So, yeah, there's a couple of sort of skills that seem to link with this, but in general, feeling that you're part of a greater whole and, and you matter in that journey yeah, seems to link to performance. Um, so let's move to your company. I really love it, Purpose Plus, and it offers a range of services, and hopefully we can talk about them. Um, mm -hmm. You design a purpose-driven strategy for companies. What is a purpose-driven strategy? Uh, you know, how does it look like, and, and how would you go about designing a purpose-driven strategy? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a very good question. Um, let, let, let me first say why I wanted to make this into a strategy in the first place, right? So, um, as a psychologist and also as a, as a consultant, like what was quite clear to me when I started this whole purpose journey is that management was trained in that, that Friedman doctrine that we discussed, right? So very clear shareholder values um, or value and, and, and technically sort of share price based thinking. And everything that wasn't in the same bucket uh, sort of was in the bucket of psychology and, and spiritual or vague stuff. So automatically it was therefore classified as something that we should not be, be doing. I think the right way to approach this purpose discussion is doing it in the way how you would normally build a strategy. And you would build a strategy by looking at the areas where you want to be, right? the areas to play, uh, the possible return on investment in those areas, uh, the owners that you would need in, in, in people for this, uh, timelines, KPIs, like the, the classic things that you actually make something abstract into something which becomes very pragmatic and, and tangible that you can execute. And, and that part in particular was missing in the purpose discussion. So everything was really sort of intangible. Everybody wanted to contribute to climate change or maybe contribute to gender equality or something else, but it wasn't tangible enough to really do. So what we started doing is, is approaching the purpose question in the same way as a McKinsey or a Bain or BCG would approach a strategy discussion, uh, which meant a couple of things. It, it meant that you had to identify the different stakeholders that you can impact, right? So you have, for example, your clients, you have your employees, you have your shareholders, of course, uh, you have society, and maybe you have uh, even a broader thing like, like climate, that you feel your company is positioned to impact. But you have to be clear on those, like where you can have an impact and where you cannot. Um, other companies decided to do the same thing with SDGs. So you look at the 17 SDGs that come from the UN uh, and you select the, the SDGs where you can really matter and where you can be important. Uh, and hopefully there's only two or three and, and not the whole 17. So, but, but going through these first sort of discussions, it, you want to get it from something very abstract to something which is already more tangible. Uh, then we generally took them through a couple of, um, you know, classic, classic two by two matrices, which uh, forced them to make a choice. And, and one of those choices was, do you want to be first or do you want, want to wait until regulators come your way? Right? If you're first, you may have a chance to 
uh, capture the value that comes from uh, branding, for example, Tesla Patagonia, right? You very clearly move into the green space uh, that can be valuable, but can also be risky. Um, and the second question we asked them is, is this like an implicit journey for you where you're going to train people and you're going to have different ethics and different value systems? Or are you willing to go to the market with this? Or is this an explicit uh, product or branding campaign that you're going to do? Mm. So those kind of big choices um, are the beginning of a real strategy in this direction. And the end result, of course, should be that you have very clear metrics uh, with very clear plans and very clear owners and very clear budgets. Uh, but then these metrics are impact metrics uh, instead of financial metrics. Okay, and how does this look like? Um, is it from the, is it at the top of an organization? Is it the CEO or C-level? How, how do the engagements look? Yeah, so, so normally uh, this, this strategy process is also something that, that starts normally at C-level. So it, it's a board discussion. Um, so it literally means you, you need to have the, the top team in the room and, and have this discussion for one or two days. Uh, so obviously one or two days, it, so you, you could do it for a whole day or two. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like, like the choices, the choices are very big, right? These are not small choices. If, if you're a company um, and you decide, well, hey, we're going to, uh, to have an impact on climate um, and, and our KPIs uh, are carbon, for example, and carbon uh, will be the responsibility of uh, person X, um, that is a big choice because if you start to report on it, it becomes transparent, people have a judgment about it. Clients will have a judgment about it. Employees will have a judgment about it. So the whole thing, actually, these are very big choices to make. Yeah, and so that's, that's yeah, it will take one or two days to get that right at the minimum. And are they, do they commit that time in your experience, like the C-level? Because obviously they're very busy people. Do they commit that much time to an engagement like this? Uh, eight years ago or seven years ago, no. <laughs> then, then, <laughs> You know, we, we, we had a couple of companies that we considered friends, uh, like Fairphone in Amsterdam and, and Patagonia in, in Europe. Uh, technically, these were companies where we were preaching to the converted, right? We, we, we were saying something that they had already discovered. Um, so there, of course, but in the more traditional companies at the time, it was quite difficult. Uh, but also at the time, almost no company was reporting anything related to SDGs or to impact. And it, it was still completely... Um, yeah, it was seen as a political uh, position that you would take. Today, I think, if I'm correct, close between 80 and 90% of all companies that are public are reporting their impact on the SDGs. So today it's almost completely normal to do that. And so that has changed completely within a space of eight years. And the real big thing to solve still is how do you really make it tangible? How do you make it stick? And how do you translate it to, to behavior on employee level. So I think today it's way more common to have that discussion than eight years ago. Hmm. And, and how much preparation do you do before this kind of workshop? And, and how do these workshops look like? Because in my mind, I, I, I envisage like the C-level sitting around and answering questions, uh, you know, about you know, how they want the company to look like or what would they you know, want to do with a billion dollars if they could invest and things like that. How, how does your purpose workshops look like? What do you prepare and how does it actually play out for a day or two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, I, I must admit that I, I'm, a, I'm very much a consultant, right? So my workshops look like, like a consultant workshop, like, like a strategy mm -hmm. workshop. So they're not, not necessarily the most inspiring, but 
I think we have a, we have a nice way to start. And, and the purpose workshops, we start in a very specific format, which is we go to uh, YouTube and we find the um, ISS space station camera that looks uh, on Earth. Uh, and we just switch that screen on and we actually let them watch for a couple of minutes uh, to planet Earth. Um, as sort of the, the opening ceremony. Uh, right? so, okay, the, so, so that, that's a bit of a statement, which, which doesn't happen in every meeting. Mm. Uh, so that, that's how we start. And then, of course, you, know, you have to do a lot of research up front. Uh, you have to know the history of the company. Uh, you have to know things on the balance sheet, which might limit your conversations, right? For example, there's an energy firm in the Netherlands where we discussed uh, this thing with, but then it turned out they had a big... Um, uh, coal um, uh, generation plants, like a, a plant that generated energy from coal, which was on the balance sheet for a couple of hundred million, that they could not really uh, sell or get rid of. So those things you have to know because they impact the discussion and, and you need to be aware of those uh, sensitivities. But rather than that, like, yeah, you try to make it inspirational in the beginning and you try to make it to sort of work on a common vision in the beginning starting with that view of Earth, and then you, you discuss the role of the organization and technically their legacy as leaders of the organization. Um, sometimes we even do quite drastic exercises that, that sort of discuss their legacy as human beings. Right? And that you, can, you can make it as drastic as you want, but sometimes- Is that individual we, legacy? Yeah, that's an individual legacy. So yeah, how are your kids going to remember you? These kind of questions, right? So it, it's relatively, um, yeah, that, that's, that's psychologist work. Um, and then later, like the further and further you go into the, the workshop, the more practical we try to make it. So in the end, I really want to end in a very specific, very clear place with clear KPIs and clear owners and clear budgets for it. But the beginning is a bit slow in the sense that we, I mean, you have to start high over, you have to start with the motivation to do it in the first place, uh, the legacy leaders want to, want to have and to create. So that's... Um, is yeah, that part, would you first define like a purpose statement for the company that they want to be X, Y, and Z, or would that come later after you've worked through some issues first? I, you know, like what do they want to try and achieve? Is that really defined or is that something that you work through in the workshop? Yeah. Yeah. So personally, I know a lot of, a lot of companies do it. Uh, and that purpose statement would be a sentence, right? Where, where, where you try to, to define a sentence. Um, I'm not a big fan of, of that practice um, oh. for, for the simple reason that, that you end up wordsmithing the sentence for a couple of hours um, and it becomes less and less meaningful. Uh, so I'm not a big fan of, of, of going into that wordsmithing exercise. I'm more a fan of going to KPIs and actual numbers um, instead of doing that, that sentence work. But I know it's quite popular uh, as, as a workshop format as well. And that day or two, would, it, would you want the KPIs to come out of those, that workshop or would that be subsequent meetings that you have with other people? Ideally, it would be in the same meeting, right? And, and of course, you know, there, there's different levels in the organization, so you cannot define those KPIs precisely for every team. Mm. Um, and and in, in the long run, there's always a bit of bottom-up combined with top-down processes there that, that teams probably want to figure out their own ways to contribute. But I think the high-level KPI should come out of those first meetings. Okay. And then would you help like, disseminate or, or spread the, those kind of KPIs through the entire company? Um, would, would you be involved with that or would, would, you, would the company then do that themselves? Yeah, the, the whole communication side of things um, is, is not my main strength. right? So okay. it, 
sometimes, uh, but not in the sense that I would draft a communication plan or Purpose Plus would do it, but, but sometimes in a way that we would drive the critical workshops with management teams below the first management team, right? Uh, uh. So that you would technically do similar workshops on lower levels a couple of times, so you sort of create the alignment and you bring everything together, but, but not in the sense that you would do And would that be taking the output from the first um, you know, C-level executive output and then breaking it down even further in, in subsequent meetings or defining it exactly for that particular division or business units area within the broader KPIs that you've defined? Or yeah, exactly. So, so ideally, the, the first meeting ends with very clear uh, shareable output that okay. you would then put on the wall in the meetings uh, a level down. I you develop purpose-driven talent development programs. Uh, I haven't heard of that before. What is a purpose-driven talent development program? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it, it, it's technically a program where this topic is addressed explicitly. Um, so it does not mean that there's no, no other skills um, being addressed in there, right? It will still have the usual uh, Excel skills and negotiation skills, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, it, it, most of the time it means that the company purpose is discussed very explicitly and that there are workshops which are quite personal where people also discuss with one another like why they're here in the first place and how they're contributing to it. So it, it technically gives them the space to link their personal um, sense of purpose to what the company is trying to achieve. So that, that's like the broader workshops that you have maybe throughout the organization. Or you could go into a company fresh. And uh, so I, when I read that, I thought it might be linked to their specific deliverables or their um, developing skills for them. But it, it sounds to me like it's more of a broader type of awareness program. Or am I getting it wrong? Um, well, well, most of the time, right? Like, like obviously, like the awareness is a big part of it. But um, quite often, the clients that I've worked with then do want to have pragmatic output of the session. So you're almost never stuck with just an awareness session. Most of the time, that first or so is awareness. So they learn about the company purpose, the, the KPIs, uh, the discussion that, that, that we've had so far. And then they're asked to contribute to it, right? And it can have a lot of different forms. It can be, hey, we have this, this issue left, which we feel your company's position to solve. Uh, or it can be, hey, guys, this is how we want to work. Um, how will this translate into behavior on this team level? But there is almost always a format where you drive it towards specific outcomes uh, on that level that then contribute to, um, to having an impact uh, in line with the purpose. Uh, so I haven't prepped this for you, Ren, so I'm taking it unaware. But um, is there any story that you could share with us about how you've worked with a company and defining their purpose has really had an impact in the company? Yeah, I, I, let, me, let me try to tell you one story which, without saying the name of the company. Because yeah. it, it, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting one. So um, a couple of years ago in the Netherlands, we, well, we had a situation where the financial firms were really under pressure and, and they were making almost daily headlines in the news for sort of being unethical. And, and part of that related to, um, to the tax constructions they would make for clients, right? And it was the time where, where Apple had, I think, 100 million uh, USD in um, floating somewhere in, in the ocean. Um, and the tax constructions for, uh, for those uh, situations were questioned in the news. So that led to one of the major financial firms in the Netherlands um, sending a request to us to ask if we could help with the pragmatic side of purpose 
uh, for the tax division of that company, um, which, which was a good challenge. Uh, I'm not going to lie. It was, a, it was a serious challenge. And I don't know much about taxes either. So that was a, it, was, it was an inspiring thing to, to try to solve. And um, what also mattered was that this is a partnership. So the CEO was an elected partner. So that he's not completely in charge of what we're doing. He, he can kickstart the process, but he cannot, um, in an autocratic way, determine what the end result will be. So it sort of meant we need to have a majority vote of partners to really get something done. Um, so I think the project was, was, on one hand, really inspiring. On the other hand, it was a bit like House of Cards, right? You need to have the right political alliance to get stuff done. Uh, plus, we had six weeks because there would be a public interview uh, with the CEO on this topic. Um, so we, it was time constrained. Um, it was very complex. We had 180 partners to align. Um, and we said yes to the project. So there was a lot of fun. What we did in the beginning is we interviewed 50 partners individually. And that was, was almost like a psychologist format where we discussed how they viewed purpose in life. Um, how they discussed this with their kids. Uh, we learned quite some of the partners had sort of Christian values. So they would say, well, well my, my personal values would be that it's really important right, to have a good impact and you always have to be kind to others, et cetera, et cetera. But in business, it's very different, right? In business, um, you have to use your elbows and you have to win. Mm. So we learned that they sort of saw two different worlds and they, they had sort of two different uh, personalities almost. Um, and the more we discussed that with them, the more they actually told, told us that it was not a desirable situation. And if there's a way to bridge that, they would welcome that very much. So very interesting discussions with 50 different partners. Then we actually proposed them a way to, you know, almost like, like a strategy document, a way to mitigate um, the problems they were having. So a couple of possible solutions with the business case. We ended up bringing everybody to one of the Dutch islands in the north, one of the wow. small islands we had. Uh, so we had 180 people there in a, in a plain uh, hangar uh, to do the final workshops. And we gave them back all the oh. quotes from the interviews, um, which were uh, juicy. <laughs> so there were, there were definitely some good quotes there, and, and including the solutions that we thought were the right ones to do. And collectively with 180 people there, we finalized this and we, um, we signed it and it was done. And How did you do that? Did you divide them up into groups or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we technically, we, we gave them a space, you know, it's like a co-design session where you, you let them design the last bits of the solution which are still unsolved. But uh, to be completely fair, like, like that's always a part of it. And it sort of means implicit agreement with the wider thing, which is then also agreed in the same session, right? So wow. And how big was your team? My team was five guys, and we had 180 sure. guys. Yeah, it's relatively small, <laughs> but mm. doable. Managing 180 and, people. Wow, that's amazing. And yeah, so what yeah, were the yeah, outcomes of that? Yeah, I, I cannot share everything explicitly because, it, it, of course, it's part of their, um, of course. Their, their strategy. But one of the big things was that if you, do a, um, if, if you recommend a text construction to a client, um, that you have to transparently let the client know what the impact is of, of this text construction uh, on the stakeholders involved. So it looks a bit like a, like a spider chart, right? So you have to map those stakeholders and, and show the impact, wow. which means that if it's, um, if it's um, a text construction which only benefits you, uh, that will show very clearly in the chart. 
and, uh, and you may get in trouble if you pick that one, right? So they were uh, told to explicitly say that. Of course, in the end, the client has the final word. So if the client wants to buy construction X, they can do it. Um, but then they would do so uh, explicitly knowing the risk um, and the ethical implications of that structure. So that was one of the main, uh, the main choices we made. Uh, and the email that went out the next day from the CEO's office was, uh, here are the conclusions. And underneath the email it said uh, FIFO, which meant uh, fit in or fuck off, which was I think, very clear. <laughs> <laughs> this was how we were going to do it. <laughs> Goodness me. Um, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I don't know if I need to edit that out of the podcast. <laughs> no, I think but it, it's an important part because it shows the commitment that you would want to, to see from the leader, right? So uh, yeah. I, I like that a lot because it was such a clear commitment to, to getting it right. When you, when if you look on your LinkedIn, it says there that you are an advisor to the G20 um, and you also do Chemo AI. But that sounds unbelievably like awesome. It sounds like a James Bond. Is it really, what is an advisor to a G20? The G20, yeah, what does that entail? Yeah. yeah, I'm still sort of figuring it out on myself, right? But, but the, now the, the, the story is that um, uh, every year there's a different nation that, that is hosting the G20. And G20 is a group of, uh, let's say, the, the largest economies on the planet. So right. technically, those 20 nations make up 90% of the global economy. And for example, when it comes to climate, they make up 87% of the, uh, the emissions. Yes. So the group is very important. Um, it's also very high level. So obviously nations have more uh, room to make choices for themselves than the G20 has room to make choices for those nations. Uh-huh. So it's, it's a high level political body. Uh, last year, Japan was the host, but the, the host of this year is Saudi Arabia. Um, well, my first role last year was to help Saudi Arabia with um, an offsite, or which technically hosted some ministers, which dealt uh-huh. with environment all the time. Um, and we, well, technically then the role is to make sure that offsite works well and we get to the right results. Uh-huh. And this year is broader. So I'm involved in those meetings, but also involved in some of the negotiations and, uh, um, and some of the communique writing, because a big part of that is that you actually draft statements between nations where you share goals um, and commitments. Wow. Uh, and so is your involvement specifically for the next G20 summit? Um, well, so, is that so in Saudi Arabia, you said? You probably mean the one in November, right? Is that the one? So is that in Saudi Arabia in November? Is that when it's happening? Yeah, well, it, it's actually a bit different. Like the, the, the one that people see on television, that's sort of the final concluding one, right? So there you'll see um, global leaders come together and shake hands. But that's more symbolic. Like the actual work being done is happening in smaller sessions which uh, happen per, per vertical like then a vertical then is a, in many cases a ministry so for example for environment you will have ministers coming together for energy you'll have ministers coming together for finance um, and the communicate drafting and the negotiations happen per vertical and they happen throughout the year so they're happening right now and the the meeting that people will see on televisions is technically a symbolic thing end of the year where everything is concluded. And so you're involved in a subset of it. You're not involved in the whole thing, are you? I'm involved in the um, environment. Uh, oh, in the system. environment section. Okay, cool. Yeah. Which That's is awesome. good because it's the most 
the, the thing closest to my heart and, and I would say the most purpose-driven. So are you spending a lot of time so outside Holland? Year, right? It's obviously a big topic. Yeah. Uh, two weeks ago, I was there in, in, in this case in Riyadh. And I think two weeks from now, I'll be there as well. But yeah, so yeah, quite some time. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. So absolutely amazing. And then you've got a, an AI company, um, Kimo AI. Is that a startup or how, how, what, is, what do you do with that? That is definitely a startup. Yeah, it's, okay. um, it's a small firm. It, it's, um, it's growing. We, we just hired two people this week. What we're doing is we, um, yeah, it, it's, it's a new purpose-driven firm in the education space. So we're trying to um, build an, a scalable system that can provide personal tutoring to students. So it's like, yeah, it's a system that technically calculates your ideal learning journey um, out of all the online content that you could be learning. So it, it would know exactly where you are, the job you hold, the interests you have, uh, your proficiency on a certain skill, and then provide you with the right content. So it, it's sort of like the ambition is that we bring uh, like a digital Harvard Business School professor to every student okay. uh, that they can talk to 24-7. Uh, but it's... It's completely digital. So it's an AI firm for education where that's the mission. Is it aimed at university students? Um, yeah, that, that all is, ages. it's probably going to be, it's also going to be B2B. So oh, okay. I do it with a founder who, um, his name is Krishna, he's in, uh, in India. And if you ask him what the mission of the company is, he would say, you're going to fix education for India. And um, he means uh, young, young students. Right. And if you ask me what the mission is, I would say yes, fully agree, but we're also going to sell some of it to companies here in Western Europe. Okay, good. <laughs> so hopefully you get on the same mission soon. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the same thing. I just care a bit more about money than he does. But uh... <laughs> All right, Ren, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. I really appreciate you taking your time. It's been fascinating. And it was you know, awesome having you on the podcast. So thank you so much for joining me today and joining us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Brilliant. So, uh, and if people want to get hold of you, how do they do that? Uh, the best thing is just send me an email. <laughs> to, yeah. uh, to so, Ren's at purposeplus.com. Oh. Yeah, let, let's do the let, let's use the chemo one. It's easier for people to remember. Chemo, so okay. R-E-N-S at chemo, uh, K-I-M-O dot A-I. Super, thank you. So yeah. I hope you, the listeners, enjoyed and found this podcast valuable. If you'd like to chat about any of these concepts further, then please do. You can contact me through my website at www.ideastorm.co.za or email me directly at lance at ideastorm.co.za. So until next time, have an absolutely fantastic week.